Chapter 3 of The Countess of Rudolstadt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Countess of Rudolstadt by George Sand, translated by Francis G. Shaw. Chapter 3. There was a moment's silence during which the midnight hour slowly struck. Footnote. The opera began and ended earlier than in our days. Frederick sat down to supper at ten o'clock. Usually, Voltaire had the art of changing the topic of conversation when a cloud passed over the brow of his dear Trajan and of effacing the uneasy expression which displayed itself upon the features of the other guests. But that evening, Voltaire, sad and suffering, experienced the dull attacks of that Prussian spleen, which quickly seized upon all those happy mortals who had been called to contemplate Frederick in his glory. It was on this very morning that Lemaitre had repeated to him that fatal saying of Frederick's, which caused a real aversion to succeed, the feigned friendship of those two great men. Footnote. I keep him because I have need of him. In a year I shall not want him any longer, and will get rid of him. I squeeze the orange, and then throw away the peel. It is well known that this sentence was a bitter pill to Voltaire's pride. So that he did not say a word. Faith, thought he, he may throw away the peel of Lemaitre as soon as he pleases. Let him be angry. Let him suffer, so that this supper come to an end. I have the colic, and all his compliments will not prevent my feeling it. Frederick was therefore obliged to exert himself and to resume his philosophical serenity without assistance. Since we are upon the chapter of Cagliostro, said he, and the hour for ghost stories has just struck. I will tell you mine, and you shall judge how much is to be believed of the science of these sorcerers. My story is a true one, and I had it from the person to whom the adventure happened last summer. The incident which occurred this evening at the theater brings it to my recollection, and is perhaps connected with what I am about to relate." Will the story be one to terrify us? asked Lemaitre. Perhaps, replied the king. In that case, resumed he, I will shut the door behind me. I can't bear an open door when anything is said of ghosts and prodigies. Lemaitre closed the door, and this king spoke thus. Cagliostro, as you know, had the art of showing to the credulous pictures, or rather magic mirrors, upon which he made absent persons to appear. He pretended to display them at the very moment and thus to reveal the occupations and most secret actions of their lives. Jealous women went to him to discover the infidelities of their husbands or their lovers. There were even some lovers and husbands who received strange revelations respecting the conduct of certain ladies. And the magic mirror disclosed, they say, several mysteries of iniquity. However this may be, the Italian singers of the opera united one evening and offered him a pretty supper, with good music, on condition that he would show them some tricks of his art. 
he accepted and named a day to Porporino, when he would exhibit to them paradise or purgatory at their option. The Barberini family were also at the party. Mademoiselle Jean Barberini asked to see the late Doge of Venice, and as Monsieur Cagliostro very readily resuscitates the dead, she saw him, was greatly terrified, and rushed quite dismayed out of the black cabinet in which the sorcerer had placed her face to face with the ghost. I very much suspect the Barberini. Wu is somewhat of a scoffer, as Voltaire says, of having pretended terror in order to laugh at our Italian actors, who, as a rule, are not over-brave, and who immediately refuse to submit to the same trial. Mademoiselle Porporina, with that quiet air which you know she has, told Monsieur Cagliostro that she would believe in his science if he would show her a person of whom she was thinking at that moment, and that there was no need of her naming him, since he, Cagliostro, was a sorcerer and ought to be able to read in her mind as in a book. What you ask is a serious matter, replied Cagliostro, and yet I think I can satisfy you. If you swear to me by all that is most solemn and most terrible, not to address a word to the person I shall show to you, and not to make the smallest movement, the least gesture, during the apparition. The porporina bound herself by an oath and entered the black cabinet with great resolution. It is needless to remind you, gentlemen, that this young person is one of the firmest and most correct that can be imagined. She is learned, reasons justly upon all things, and I have reasons for believing that she is not accessible to any false or narrow idea. She remained in the apparition chamber long enough to astonish her comrades and to make them anxious. Still everything passed in the most profound silence. When she came out, she was very pale, and tears were flowing, they say, from her eyes. But she immediately said to her comrades, My friends, if Monsieur Cagliostro be a sorcerer, he is a lying one. Do not believe anything he may show you. She would not explain herself any farther. But Consiolini, at one of my concerts a few days afterward, having told me of this wonderful evening, I determined to question the porporina, which I did not fail to do the first time she came to sing at Saint Souci. I had some difficulty in making her speak. This is what she finally related to me. Monsieur Cagliostro doubtless possesses extraordinary means of producing apparitions so like the reality that it is impossible for the calmest minds not to be moved. Still, he is no sorcerer, and his pretense of reading my thought had no other foundation than the knowledge he must assuredly have of some particulars in my life. It is only an incomplete knowledge, and I would not advise you, sire. It is always the porporina who speaks, observed the king, to take him for your minister of police, for he would make serious mistakes. Thus, when I asked him to show me the absent person whom I desired to see, I thought of Professor Porpora, my music master, who is now at Vienna, and in place of him 
I saw appear in the magic chamber a very dear friend whom I lost last year. Sound, said Darjan, that is being much more of a sorcerer than to make her see a living man. Wait, gentlemen, Cagliostro, badly informed, did not imagine that the person he showed her was dead. For when the phantom had disappeared, he asked Mademoiselle Porporina if she was satisfied with what she had learned. In the first place, sir, replied she, I should wish to understand it. Please explain it to me. That surpasses my power, replied he. Let it be enough for you to know that your friend is tranquil and usefully employed. On which the signora resumed, Alas, sir, you have done me a great harm without knowing it. You have shown me a person whom I thought never to see again, and you now show him to me as living, when I, myself, closed his eyes six months ago. See, gentlemen, continued Frederick, how these sorcerers deceive themselves in wishing to deceive others, and how their plots are baffled by the absence of some link in their secret police. They penetrate into the mysteries of families and of private affections, up to a certain point. As the histories of all persons in this world resemble each other more or less, and people inclined to the marvelous do not examine very closely, they hit the mark twenty times in thirty. But ten times in thirty they miss, and no attention is paid to these, while a great noise is made about those trials which have succeeded. It is just the same as in horoscopes, in which they foretell to you a stupid series of events which must necessarily happen to everybody, such as journeys, illness, the loss of a friend or a relation, an inheritance, a meeting, an interesting letter, and other commonplaces of human life. But see now to what catastrophes and what domestic troubles the false revelations of a Cagliostro expose weak and passionate organizations. A husband trusts to them and kills his innocent wife. A mother becomes crazed with sorrow at seeing her absent son expire. And a thousand other disasters, which have been occasioned by the pretended divining science of the magicians. This is infamous, and you must allow that I was right in driving from my dominions this Monsieur Cagliostro, who guesses so truly and gives such good news of persons that are dead and buried. All this is very fine and good, said Lemaitre, but it does not explain to me how your majesty's porporina saw that dead man alive. For, in fine, if she is gifted with firmness and reason, as your majesty affirms, that is against your majesty's argument. The sorcerer was mistaken, it is true, in drawing from his store a dead man instead of the live one he was asked for. But it is nonetheless certain that he disposes of death and of life, and in that respect he knows more than your majesty, who, if it please your majesty, has caused many to be killed in battle and has never been able to resuscitate a single one. So we will believe in the devil, my dear subject, said the king, 
laughing at the comic glances which Lemaitre cast at Quintus Cecilius every time he pronounced the title of majesty with emphasis. Why should we not believe in that poor gossip, Satan, who is so much calumniated and has so much wit, retorted Lemaitre. To the stake with the Manichean, said Voltaire, bringing a candle close to the young physician's wig. In fine, sublime Fritz, resumed the latter, I have presented an embarrassing argument. Either the charming Porporina is foolish and credulous and saw her defunct, or she is a philosopher and saw nothing. Still, she was terrified, as she allows. She was not terrified, said the king. She was grieved, as you would be, at the sight of a portrait which exactly recalled to your memory a beloved person whom you are very sure you will never see again. But if I must tell you all, I rather think she was terrified afterwards, in that her moral power did not issue from this trial in as healthy a state as when she entered upon it. Since that time she has been subject to attacks of deep melancholy, which are always a proof of weakness or of disorder in our faculties. I am sure that her mind was affected, though she denies it. No one can play with falsehood with impunity. The kind of attack she had this evening is, in my opinion, a consequence of all that, and I wager that there is in her troubled brain some fear of the magic power attributed to Monsieur de Saint-Germain. I have been told that she has done nothing but weep since she has returned to her apartments. Ah, that you will permit me not to believe, dear Majesty, said Lemaitre. You have been to see her, therefore she weeps no longer. You are very curious, Panurge, to know the object of my visit. And you also, Darjan, who say nothing about it and appear to think as little. And you also, perhaps, dear Voltaire, who also say not a word, and think of it none the less certainly. How should we not be curious about everything that Frederick the Great sees fit to do, replied Voltaire, who made an attempt at complacence on seeing the king prepared to speak. Perhaps some men have no right to hide anything, while the least of their words is a precept, and the smallest of their actions an example. My dear friend, you wish to make me proud. Who would not be so at being praised by Voltaire? That is no sign you did not laugh at me during the quarter of an hour I was absent. Well, during that quarter of an hour, still, you cannot imagine that I had time to go as far as the opera house in which the porphyrina dwells, recite a long madrigal to her, and come back on foot, for I was on foot. Bah, sire, the opera house is quite near, said Voltaire and you do not require more time than that to gain a battle. You are mistaken. A great deal more time is required, replied the king quite coldly. As Quintus Acilius, as to the Marquis, who is so well acquainted with the virtue of opera girls, he will tell you that it requires more than a quarter of an hour to subdue them. Aha, sire, that depends. Yes, that depends. But I hope for your sake that Mademoiselle Cochus gave you more trouble. The fact is, gentlemen, that I have not seen Mademoiselle Porporina this night, 
and that I have only been to speak to her servant and ask how she was. You, sire, cried Nometri. I wish to carry to her with my own hands a flask of medicine, from which I suddenly recollected that I had experienced very salutary effects, when I was subject to spasms of the stomach which sometimes took away my senses. Well, you say nothing. You are all astounded. You feel inclined to praise my paternal and royal goodness, and dare not, because, at the bottom of your hearts, you consider me perfectly ridiculous? By my faith, sire, if you are in love like a simple mortal, I do not consider it ridiculous, said Lemaitre, and do not find in it occasion either for praise or for laughter. Well, my good Panurge, I am not the least in love, since I must speak clearly. I am a simple mortal, it is true, but I have not the honor to be king of France and the gallant manners which are appropriate in a great monarch like Louis the Fifteenth would be sadly out of place in a little marquis of Brandenburg like me. I have other fish to fry and have not time to rest inside Thirstian bowers. In that case, I cannot understand your solicitude for this little opera singer, said Lemaitre, and unless it be the consequence of some musical mania, I will give up guessing. That being so, know, my friends, that I am not the porporina's lover, nor am I in love with her, but that I am much attached to her, because under circumstances too long to tell you now, she saved my life without knowing me. The adventure was a strange one, and some other time I will relate it to you. This evening it is too late, and Monsieur de Voltaire is going to sleep. It is enough for you to know that if I am here, and not in hell, whither the devotees would send me, I owe it to that girl. You can now understand that, knowing her to be dangerously indisposed, I could go and see if she were not dead, and carry her a flask of stalls, without, on that account, wishing to pass in your eyes for a Richelieu or a lasso. Now, gentlemen, I wish you good evening. It is now ten hours that I have not taken off my boots, and I must put them on again in six. I pray God that he will keep you in his holy and worthy care, as at the bottom of a letter. At the moment when midnight struck from the great palace clock, the young and worldly abbess of Quindlinburg had betaken herself to her bed of rose-colored satin, when her first lady of the bedchamber, as she placed her slippers upon the ermine carpet, started and uttered a cry. Someone had knocked at the door of the princess's sleeping chamber. "'Well, are you crazy?' said the beautiful Amelia, opening her curtain. "'Why do you start and sigh in that manner?' "'Did not your royal highness hear a knock?' "'Has someone knocked? Then go and see who it is.' "'Ah, madam, what living being would dare to knock at your highness's door "'when it is known that you are in bed?' No living person would dare, say you. In that case, it is a dead one. At any rate, go and open. There, they knock again. Go at once. You make me lose my patience. The lady of the bedchamber, more dead than alive, dragged herself to the door and asked, 
Who is there? In a trembling voice. It is I, Madame Der Kleist, replied a well-known voice. If the princess is not yet asleep, tell her that I have something important to communicate. Quick, quick, let her in, cried the princess from her bed, and leave us. As soon as the abbess and her favorite were alone, the latter seated herself upon the foot of the mistress's bed and spoke thus. Your royal highness was not mistaken. The king is madly in love with the porporina, but he is not yet her lover, which certainly gives that girl for the moment an unlimited power over him. And how have you learned this in the last hour? Because when undressing to go to bed, I made my chambermaid talk. She told me she had a sister in the service of this porporina. Thereupon I questioned her, and by degrees wormed out of her that my said maid had just come from her sister's, and that, at the same moment, the king left the porporina. Are you quite sure of that? My maid saw the king as I see you. He even spoke to her, taking her for her sister, who was busy in another chamber waiting upon her mistress, who was ill, or pretended to be so. The king asked respecting the porporina's health with extraordinary anxiety. He stamped his foot with much vexation on learning that she did not cease weeping. He did not ask to see her, for fear of troubling her, he said. He left for her a very precious flask. At last he retired, desiring that the invalid should be told the next day of his visit at eleven o'clock. This is an adventure indeed, cried the princess, and I can hardly believe my ears. Does your maid know the king's features? Who does not know the face of a king always on horseback? Besides, a page was sent five minutes in advance as a scout in order to see that no one was with the fair lady. During that time, the king, muffled and wrapped up, waited below in the street in full incognito, as is his custom. So there is mystery, anxiety, and above all, respect. That shows love, or I know nothing about it, Kleist. And you came, in spite of the cold and darkness, to tell me this very quickly. Ah, my poor child, how good you are. Say also, in spite of the apparitions, do you know there is a fresh panic in the chateau for some nights past, and that my chasseur trembled like a great coward on traversing the corridors to accompany me? What is it? The white woman again? Yes, the sweeper. This time it is not we who play that game, my poor Kleist. Our phantoms are far away, and would to heaven those apparitions might appear. I thought at first it was the king who was amusing himself by appearing, since he now has a motive to drive curious valets from his path. But what has greatly astonished me is that the Sabbath does not take place near his apartments or on his road to the porporinas. It is around your highness that the spirits walk, and I confess that now I have nothing to do with it. It frightens me a little. What do you say, child? How can you believe in specters? You know them so well. That is the very hick. It is said they are angry when you imitate them and that they follow you in earnest to punish you. 
In that case, they are rather tardy with us, for they have left us quiet for more than a year. Come, don't be troubled by such nonsense. We know what is to be believed about these souls in purgatory. It is certainly some page or some lieutenant who comes in the night to request the prayers of the prettiest of our waiting maids. So the old one, of whom nothing is requested, was horribly frightened. There was a moment when she did not wish to open for you. But what are we talking about? Decleist, we have the king's secret and must profit by it. How shall we manage? We must secure this poor Verena, and be quick, before her favor renders her vain and distrustful. Doubtless we must fear neither presents, nor promises, nor flattery. You shall go to her tomorrow. You shall request of her for me. Some music, some of Porpora's autographs. She must have many unpublished pieces of the Italian masters. You shall promise her some of Sebastian Bach's manuscripts in return. I have several. We will begin by exchanges, and then I will ask her to come and show me the movements. And as soon as I have her with me, I will undertake to secure and overpower her. I will go tomorrow morning, madam. Good night, Decleist. Here, come and kiss me. You are my only friend. Now go to your bed, and if you meet the sweeper in the galleries, look sharp and see if she has not spurs under her gown. End of chapter 3